Baseball Italian Style brings together the memories of major leaguers of Italian heritage whose collective careers span nine decades, from the 1930s to the present. In these first-person accounts, baseball fans will meet the players they cheered as heroes or jeered as adversaries, as well as coaches, managers, front office executives, and umpires at an intimate level. Join author Lawrence Baldessaro and some of the pillars of our national pastime in these historic and never-before-heard interviews. Baseball Italian Style starts now. Basio, May 18th, 2016, Miller Park. Sir, start anywhere you like. What are your family background? Well, How much you know about it? Uh, my grandfather, you know, it, it was uh, you know born in Sicily, and uh, yeah, came over and they. They knew they wanted to live in the Bay Area. Uh, he had a grandfather who grew up in the Bay Area. My mom and dad were born in, in San Francisco. They ran a liquor store. And back then, they had a liquor store, and they ran like a little numbers, little numbers game out of there. My dad used to be the runner, picking up the brown bag. I'll say just those sandwiches, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they were very you know, proud of, you know, Italian Catholic family. Um, my mom was an extremely hard-working woman. Um, she battled Hopkins disease her whole life. Oh. Uh, my dad, federal government worker, uh, he spent his whole life you know, working his, his tail off. Uh, I remember as a kid, we had to share a house with another, fam another family in, in Rochester, Minnesota, because we, by no means... A wealthy family, and by sharing another home, obviously we had a lot of bills that we had to pay. But my dad worked three jobs uh, trying to pay the medical bills. My mom couldn't work; uh, she was going through the radiation, the chemo, and you know it was a really hard thing for me, uh, being the oldest, trying to help out and literally raise my brother and sister, having to cook, clean, but I don't know how to do that stuff in an early age. My mom was an unbelievably strong woman. Um, and uh, it'll be 10 years now that she's passed uh, this coming Christmas. But she's missed. And um, I think that's where I got and not only my determination, but my drive. And also, also I believe, like this. Uh, and I know I was fiery as a player, but but I've learned, you know, as I've gotten older, just, just kind of that, that calmness, that and I, I just remember my mom going through so much. There's so many other people out there that are going through the same. That I mean, I'm, I'm so lucky and blessed to be able to be a baseball player now, coach. When I think about all those tough situations that everybody thinks that we're in as here as a as a as a player, whether it's Brewers or Mariners or Cubs, and it just kind of brings a calm over me knowing what you know my mom went through, my dad went through. Uh, other family members have gone through. Or my brother died of lung cancer in my arms. Um, you know, a lot of tough things that people go through. You know, I uh, you know recently you know got married. My wife, uh, you know, she's gone through a lot of the same things in her family, and you know, it just it tests you when you're young, but you learn from it as you get old. 
Was your mom of Italian descent? Yeah, my mom, absolutely. Her maiden name was Katina. Um, my great-great-great-grandfather was Charles Schwab. Uh, was a, you know, Schwab brokerage firm uh, out of Jackson, California. Her great My great-great-great-grandfather, her great-grandfather was Charles Schwab. That was my, my grandmother's maiden name. Uh, no, I did not inherit any money from Schwab family. Then my mom did inherit some uh, some property in San Francisco that is still in the family. But, um, you know, just hearing about all the stories and stuff. Um, and when my great-grandfather came over, he brought all this beautiful, beautiful uh, wood, oversized wood furniture, just the, the curve, the, the architecture and the design of it, the, the weight of it is uh, you know, wine glasses, gold trim wine glasses and plates and the silverware. Um, a lot of that stuff we still have. A lot of that stuff um, is in storage. My, I know my dad's going to give some of that stuff away to me and my and my sister. But it's it's memories that I remember. Um, you know, going to my grandmother's house. I remember getting up at nine o'clock in the morning, uh, and the only thing I smelled was pasta. And they'd be cooking pastas all day long, and you'd have it. You'd have it breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it was always, "Are you sure you're eating enough?" But you know, you'd have your breakfast at five or six in the morning at nine o'clock. That's when uh, you know they started the, you know, they started the meals. You know, and and we ate those those meals all day long. Is it your great grandfather that first came from Italy? Yeah, on my great grandfather. Your dad's side. On my dad's side. Sicily. Sicily. That's correct. How did you end up in Rochester? Well, my mom had Hodgkin's disease. So went to Mayo. So went to the Mayo Clinic. So we were, I was born in Sacramento yeah. in uh, Carmichael. And then when my child out, my mom had Hodgkin's, immediately uh, we moved back there. And my, you know, my, my dad and, and mom knew some some friends out there in Casson, Minnesota, Arnie Kelly. And the Kelly family, we ended up sharing a house in Rochester. And, and Arnie was actually a distributor for Roma Pizza. So we used to, we'd have, he'd have three pizza ovens going with his family and our family. There's 10 of us. And we'd go through a couple boxes on the night, you know, with me and my brother, my sister, mom, and dad. And then their three boys, we would crush, just absolutely crush pizzas. But it was right up our, our alley because they both Italian's family, you know, getting together and we put a hurt on some food. How'd you get started in baseball? Is there somebody that introduced it to you? Or? Well, I mean, you know, back in California, I played. Once we got to Minnesota, my dad got me involved in Little League. You know, I played, you know, on some really good state all-star teams. Um, you know, made a couple state championship teams. We tried to strike tri-state championship. Uh, played football. I was a three-time state pump plastic champion out of Minnesota. I swam. I was an AAU swimmer. A two-time state champ. I was a state champ in bowling. Bowling? Bowling, yeah. This was in high school? This was before I was in high school, yeah. And it was my actually my ninth grade. We had just finished a tri-state tournament in Chicago, and we ended up finishing runner-up to a team out of Chicago in lacrosse. And my parents had already moved back to Sacramento because my dad just got a promotion uh, to Sacramento in the, the state capitol. And I stayed back for three weeks to see how far we could go. And the family drove out. And then they flew me out after the tournament. And I lived with the Moffat family out of Rochester. And they were, you know, 
uh, they were like they were like family to me. I mean, and, uh, you know, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. But I I hated my parents for moving us at that time. But that's where my family's from: Northern California, Sacramento, San Francisco, Red Bluff, Yuba City. You know, my uncle's the head fishing game warden in Yuba City. Um, you know, I got family all over, up and down the coast of Sacramento and all over the place up in Oregon. And uh, it turned out to be a great move. And my dad uh, moved into a city where he knew it was a good uh, high school program. Immediately he enrolled, enrolled me into in, in high school, uh, got into the football program, got into baseball, was playing on traveling teams. I played Football, basketball, baseball. But the guy that was most instrumental was my dad. Um, it was hard because he was always working. Yeah. He'd always try to show up to the game. My mom was sick, so she couldn't come to a lot of the games. So it was always special when she did show up. But the teams that I grew up on there, the Moffitts, Ron, um, you know, he was my coach all the time. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of great memories back in Minnesota, but you know, great memories when we moved back to Sacramento. I mean, um, you know, my childhood was it was awesome, but it was also it was difficult because you're trying to you know, help out your family as much as you can. You know, my job was to make sure that my brother and sister were getting to school and eating. My job when I got home was to try to clean and, and cook, so my dad was ready to eat when he got home. And those other days when my mom was cooking was awesome because I could I could be a kid go out and play, but I I grew up fast. There was a lot of responsibility on me, and I wouldn't have changed a thing because I knew it was helping out my mom, and she did everything for us. When did you start concentrating in baseball? Well, my high school year, um, we had just won a state championship in baseball and in football. We had a really good powerhouse in Ranch Cordova High School, and uh, my dad did not want me to play because I, I had a knee injury in my sophomore year. And uh, he said, you're going to have to make a choice. Because I, I was an outside linebacker and a quarterback as I could throw a ball, you know, 60, 65 yards, like like all pitchers in high school. But I love playing outside linebacker, but that's how I also how I blew up my knee. My dad's like, listen, you're, you're going to your junior year. If you're throwing 93 miles an hour, you know, you're a baseball player. And he made my, he made me put my stuff away and concentrate on baseball. And that was that was my dad's decision, and and it's the best one I ever made. So high school, then what happened? High school, I got drafted out of high school by uh, Pittsburgh. I was going to be taken by Philadelphia. Um, I was pitching in a high school state championship game. It was like the fifth inning, hurt my arm a little bit, fell something in my elbow. Immediately, my dad demanded I got taken out of the game. Uh, slipped a little bit in the draft, and during the game, I remember Jerry Weinstein from Sac City College says, I, "You know, you're throwing 93. I can make you throw 97 by next year," and he did. So I was drafted. You know, I think it was the 27th round by Pittsburgh. Um, then the next year, I got drafted in the second round by the Milwaukee Brewers, and that was the year that the the Brewers went to the World Series. And that, you know, I went to instruction league. I was teammates with Dale Swain and all those great, you know, Dan Plezak. Uh, Mike Burbeck, Lamb Braggs, you know, a lot of my buddies, uh, we were on that instruction league team. And, uh, you know, it was really, really good, really good memories of some really good players back then. But, um, you know, I remember, I remember it was really weird because we were watching the World Series on a TV down there in Peoria. And three days later, Harry Dalton and George Bamberg and all those guys were down in Arizona watching us with Harry Dalton. 
I'm like, wait a minute, we just saw you guys on TV, and now they're sitting there watching us. You were the next draft, next wave of talent coming through. So it was special. How did that coach get you from 93 to 97? What did he do? Uh, 93 to 97, that was Silicon Well, you mentioned somebody earlier, some guy said, I, you're showing 93. Oh, that was Jerry Weinstein. Yeah. Well, he had a, high school's high school. You get into college, it's all baseball, you know, and it was just program, weightlifting, training, running. It was more mental mindset, physical. When was this? When did that? This was in 1982. So Weinstein what? Weinstein was in 1982 at Sac City. That's when I was drafted by the Brewers. In 81, I was drafted out of high school by Pittsburgh. Right. So he was with the Brewers? Weinstein was with Sac City College. Ah. So you, did, you went to junior college? I went to junior college for half a year, and I got drafted in the January phase. Yeah. Still a national record. We had 16 guys drafted off that team. Yep. Wow. Yep. They had a team that went... Uh, I believe it was 53 and 56 and 4 that year. And Bill Guy Bet, who used to be the assistant general manager or the general manager of Colorado, only year he made all year, he dropped a two out pop up in second and third. It turned out to be the winning run on second base. And the ball went up. We thought we had it won and we stormed the field. And the ball hit his glove and then dropped on the ground. And by the time the ball dropped on the ground, the guy at second base scored. And it turned out to be the winning run. We lost the game 3 2 at the state championship. So when you were growing up in high school, did you watch baseball? Were there major leaguers that you emulated? I, I really didn't. When I lived in Minnesota, my favorite player was Rod Carew. But my parents had me in so many sports, and the reason they did that was to try to give me some, some childhood because of what I was going through as a kid growing up so fast. And, you know, I mean, that was bottom line. We had a you know, family member that had cancer. It was one of the... Hardest things I've ever gone through in my life, and it's something I'll never forget. Watching your mom literally die before your eyes four times. Tell them that your mom's not going to make it another week. She, she battled through it for 26 years. Yeah. All right, I gotta, I gotta go. I'm sorry. Okay, can we do it again tomorrow? Thanks, uh, All right, still you well. Chris Bazio. May 19, 2016. They stand out for pitching career. Well, um, for a brewer, you know, Easter Sunday, number one, when Rob Deere and Dale Swing at the home runs over at Old County Stadium. That was probably one of my most memorable things as a player. Um, Were you in that game at all? Actually, I, I ended up, I got a no decision, but I was just one of the pitchers in the game, yeah. pitching in the game. Yeah. But um, the other thing was our 13-game win streak that we had, yeah. team streak, the heart, the heart attack kids. That was a lot of fun. Um, got, was it uh, 89? We were chasing chasing Detroit, and we came up short, didn't didn't quite close the deal, but that's the year I think they traded for Doyle Alexander. Mm-hmm. With Schmoltz trade, Dole Alexander, I think, won 11 straight games. Um, and then 19, uh, O'Mallor's hit and streak. Robin Yount's 3,000, Monkey Yount's 3,000 hit. 92. I started that game. That's right. Uh, 
Yeah, I just I got that picture when he when we, we hoisted, and I still had my jacket on, so I just but I was still pitching in the game, you know, in that seventh inning when he got his hit. Didn't that game start late? Yeah, we had a rain delay. Well, there's a rain delay. It was yeah. also a blood sea leak delay. Yeah. yeah, we couldn't get there from the bagel shop. Right. To the car dealership. Oh, he was coming from Kansas City. Yeah. That's when they named the commissioner or the uh, chair of the committee. Uh, the other thing was uh, in 1992 when Cal and I, you know, we won, you know, 20 games back to back. When he had a 10 game winning streak, I had a 10 game winning streak. You know, I uh, went 16 and six that year. Uh, I think Molliver hit three three thirty something, and I remember after the season, um, Paulie called me from a, you know, and it was an emotional Molitor calling me saying that he doesn't think it's, it's going to happen. He's not going to resign with the Brewers. That he was going to sign with Toronto, and he was very emotional. And I, should I remember getting emotional myself because I couldn't believe our careers at Brewers is were over. But if they didn't resign Paul Molitor, they certainly weren't going to resign me. It doesn't matter. How many 200 inning seasons I had? I mean, back then we completed games, you know, and I, I think I had, I want to say it was 38, 39 complete games in my career. That's a lot. Today, that's, yeah, nobody that's a gets lot. there anymore. No, nobody gets there anymore, but those are obviously. That was an expectation, yeah. right? I mean, every time you went out. I remember Bamberger, if I give you the ball, you know, I better, you better not, don't let anybody ever take it out of your hand. You better. You know, finish what you start, and that was our mentality. You know, we didn't have pitch counts back then. The hitters always let you know how you're doing. <laughs> how about managers that you played under? Make sure we had uh, Seattle hitters. Well, you know, Bam Bamberger was one of my favorites because he gave me the shot. I remember when Raleigh Fingers retired. Um, he got a conference call, and me and Dan Plezak. We had a conference call with Harry Dalton and George Bamberger, and they said, "Guys, Raleigh's retiring, and you and you and Danny, you guys, you two are gonna, you guys are gonna come to spring training and battle it out for the closers role." Well, Danny and I have been starters our entire minor league careers, and I just come off the of Texas League. I was a strikeout champ, you know, after doing the same thing in uh, in Beloit, where I went seventeen and six in Beloit on a really good Beloit team, but. Um, we went to spring, made it all the way down to the last cuts, the last day, and they they ended up. So they. Uh, you know, I wrote about him today. He's very rigid with his routine. Jesus, and uh, that was entertaining. But you know, I they started me that spring training game. It was the last spring training game, and I remember giving up like five in the first inning. And uh, I was pissed, overthrowing everything, because I knew I was getting sent out. Bamberger came out to the mound, and he says, did you get your meal money from Jimmy Bank? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, give it back, because you're getting sent out. This, this is what he told me on the mound. And I said, okay. And I got sent out, and they said, you're going down to AAA to close. And I was like, man, I don't know what's going on. Because you close, I'm in the bullpen all spring, and now you start me in this game. Now you're, I'm going down to close. I, Bambi, I don't know what the hell's going on. He goes, just keep your mouth shut. Go down there and pitch. And I went down there and pitched. I had 16 saves, I think, in like two and a half months. So I was like, 
fucking 10 saves ahead of everybody. And then they called me up, and I walked into Bamberger's office, and I go, Mr. Bamberger or Chris Bazio? He goes, I know who the hell you are. And he turns around and grabbed the ball off the his briefcase, or out of his briefcase up on the on the shelves up there, opens it up. He goes, you remember this ball? And I go, no. He goes, this is the ball I took from you, a spring. He goes, you're starting. You're going to start tomorrow. And I went, Bambi, I've been closing my whole year in AAA, and now I'm going to start. And he goes, listen, you big Italian bastard. He goes, I got you here, didn't I? He goes, if I started you down in the minor leagues, you probably were going to go have to double A no matter what you did that year and all your strikeouts. He goes, because we had so many guys. Remember the white Bob Gibson, Bobby? Yeah. I mean, we did. We had a lot of guys back then, you know, pitching and good pitchers. Brewer system was loaded. You know, three-time minor league organization of the year. I mean, seven championships in those three years all throughout the system. It's Harry Dalton years. Harry Dalton years. That's right. Ray Poitavin years. Lee Sigmund years. The Super Scouts. Roland LeBlanc. You know, really good baseball guys. Really good baseball guys. And anyway, I started that game. And uh, I remember I had four and two-thirds no-hit innings. And in your first start, and my first start, and Russ Mormon, the first baseman with the White Sox, with a home run off me in the first row, right down the Old County Stadium in the left field corner. And uh, before, before I could even remember, I mean, he wasn't even all the way around the bases, and Bamberg was on the mound. So he was give me the ball, and I handed him the ball, and he goes, "You, you just couldn't finish it, could you?" And I looked at him. I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> he was just, just get, it, just get out of here. I don't even want to talk to you. And like, I can't believe I just would. I don't know what this guy wants from me. I, I, four days ago, I was closing in Vancouver, and now I'm starting in a big league game. It's not like I was stretched out, you know. And I ended up throwing like 74 pitches, more pitches than I'd thrown in over a year, you know. And then uh, he comes up to me. He goes. Just couldn't finish it, could you? And I looked right at him, and Molitor was kind of, you know, just, just relax, just relax, just relax. He goes, now get your ass out of the bullpen. I go, right now? He goes, right now. And in between innings, I had to run out to the bullpen. I went out there, and I sat next to Rick Cerrone, you know, and Lee Haney. I mean, they're, what are you doing out here? I said, he told me to come out to the bullpen. And Spongy, Cerrone looks at me, he goes, well, you couldn't finish the game? And I found out some Bambi called and said, "Hey, get Bob some shit when he comes out there about finishing the game." And then, and then I was I was a swing guy. I mean, I was I relieved. I started for the next couple of years, and and uh, I remember my second year, I had twenty starts, twenty relief appearances. But that third year, they told me I was going to start coming out of the gate of spring, and that's when my starting career really took off as a brewer. Well, you did something I don't think I've seen. Any other pitcher do? And you slide your foot across the rubber. How did that start? And how did you do that? Well, actually, it came about from you know looking up there at their the plaques up there, Molitor and Yao. I said, well, "Who? Are, what kind of pitchers are the hardest pitchers for you to face?" And so the guys that change their arm angle. I go, "What are you talking about?" He goes, "Well, put it this way. You stand up." He goes, now, if I stand up, where's my hand coming out of? And they showed me, like, in County Stadium, the backdrop where my hand comes out of. He goes, now, what happens if I move over here? And I go, well, your reach point moves. He goes, that's what you should do. The better hitters will zone you. 
And what they'll like on this backdrop, for example, they'll look in the backdrop up there and try to figure out, and you can see like some squares in the back. Yep. They'll figure out what square the ball's coming out of. And instead of looking at the pitcher, they'll look in that box for the ball. And that's how you pick up the pitcher's angle, whether they're going fastball or curveball or slider. So I started moving around on the rudder, excuse me, on the rubber for some of the better hitters in the game. But you were doing it in your wind I would do it in my windup, absolutely. Is that difficult? Well, I practiced a lot, you know, and I, I really tried to perfect it because I knew what was at stake, and it helped. Some of the swings that I got by doing that, it was, it was unbelievable. The Rafael Palmeros, the Wade Boggses of the world, the Don Mattingly's, you know, I mean, these are, you know, Manny, I remember doing it to Manny Ramirez a couple of times when he was a young player coming up with the Indians. I remember doing it against Ken Griffey Jr. playing in Seattle, and then also, you know, the next year I'm, I'm with Seattle. Yeah, you know, but those are things I did. I remember, I remember Bobby Valentine screaming at me at the top of his lungs in a game in Texas. He's not in contact with the rubber, and I turned around to him and Bob Stanley. I'm like, shut the fuck up, just shut the fuck, fuck you guys. And I remember hitting Kevin Reimer with a pitch. We had a big brawl in County Stadium, and it was a, the one punch thing that I did with Reimer. And then that brawl, I had Bobby Valentine. In one hand, and Bob Stanley in another, like this, and Bobby's Bobby's going, "You're fucking joking me!" But it was a paisan. It was a paisan as well. Well, that's how we treated each other. <laughs> it's all well, good. So getting to Seattle now, of course, you got to talk about the no hitter against my Red Sox. Yeah, we. Uh, it was a really horrible, horrible off season. I had my house broken into by a transient guy. Who lived in my house for about ten days. Um, up in Shingle Springs. Um, there was a murder-suicide in our apartment in Phoenix. Um, my dog got hit by a construction truck, almost killed him. They, uh, <laughs> and then on top of that, right in the last thing, right towards the end of spring, my grandfather died. And my grandfather was the big reason why I signed with Seattle because he wanted me to, he wanted to watch baseball. So that's why I signed with the Mariners. Got the chance to be in, you know, Arizona Spring. And I had a chance to, you know, play in front of him on the West Coast so he could watch the games. It was tough for him because, you know, Milwaukee, where a lot of the games weren't televised. Right. But once I got up to Seattle, everything was televised because we were really kind of the only team. The last, last game being shown, it was either us. Or the Giants, or the Dodgers, or the Angels. Yeah. You know, West Coast baseball. Yeah. But I remember he died, and um, I mean, it was, it was it was horrible. I remember getting a call. We were in Yuma, Arizona. Clubhouse guy said, "Hey, you're, you know, you're uh, you got a phone call in here, and I don't think it's good news." And I go, "What the hell? What are you talking about?" Come to find out, you know, it's my mom, and uh, my grandfather had passed away. And two days later, found myself up in Red Bluff, California, as you know. I, uh, I came home. I had one more start. I think I had three starts that spring. Normally you get six. But I, I'd gone to spring training ready to go. I was always ready to go. I'd done my throwing. The condition was fine because I always ran every morning. Um, my first game I lost. I threw a complete game, lost 2-1 to one to Pat Henkin at Toronto. My next game, I uh, was in Detroit. I actually went to Toronto, but then I, I missed that. Went to Detroit, set a career high in strikeouts. Went to Detroit, 
and he came back, had to pitch on three days rest because Eric Hansen was sick, and uh, I woke up with the flu, puking everywhere. And those guys were like, hey, you know, can you go? And I'm like, fuck yeah, I can go. I'll be fine. <laughs> and I remember normally I threw 40, 42 pitches in my warm-up. I threw about 20 pitches. I took the ball and just kind of threw it in stance. Pitching coach Sammy Ellis, he goes, is that it? I said, that's it. That's all I got. He goes, where are you going? I go, I'm going to go puke. Well, you want to come with me? And walk the first two guys of the game. And he comes out to the mound. He goes, what's going on? I go, hey, you know, you're the flipping pitching coach. Why don't you tell me? You know? So uh, I walk the first two guys. He goes, well, if that's the case, let's get a ground ball and try to get out of this thing. So I got a ground ball with Mike Greenwell on a one pitch. Got the two. And I struck out Andre Dawson on three cutters. And uh, next thing I know, I woke up in the eighth inning with a no-hitter. You know? Is it true that you weren't there? Can I have a lot of people no. say that? No, I was total yeah. tunnel vision. I was, I was probably still sick. But then I realized it, and every pitch, people were magnified, the crowd. Um, I noticed people weren't sitting around me in the dugout. Jay Buhner sat right next to me all the time. And then the last play, no hitter facing Ernie Riles, former teammate of mine. I knew Ernie was going to swing early because Ernie always did. So I threw a little little dead fish fastball out there and high chopper over my head. And I remember looking up, going, Grandpa, you got that one? And I turn around and Omar's hat goes flying off. He bare hands the ball and throws it first base. Yeah. It slide down a little bit. Was it, was that the best, the best game you pitched? Or did no. You no, I had I had a one hit in my, in my career with the Brewers. I had a one hitter, a two hitter, a three hitter, a four hitter, a five, six, and a seven hit shutouts. I mean, I pitched much better games in that game, but I mean, I was pitching on three days rest. It was a 90, 96 pitch complete game. Um, but yeah, there was, you know, a couple of seam balls, one ball that hit the seams, bounced off Tino, Brett Boone, bare handed the ball. Threw to me covering first. There was play down the line with Mike Blowers, uh, Jr. coming in, sliding. How Cambridge Jr. gracefully did it all the time. Yeah. So there was three big plays in that game, but every no hitter has a couple. And I, yeah. I was, mine was no exception. Uh, pitching the first playoff game in Maryland history was quite an honor for me. Being a part of that 95 club, saving baseball in Seattle. Uh, we've got trophies and plaques and crystal that ownership gave us as far as their gratitude and helping us. Because that was a big thing. I mean, we were gone. We were, we were leaving. And people of Washington found it in their heart, got that thing passed through, and now they got a beautiful new stadium there that they'd be proud of for probably the next 100 years. When did you start thinking about going into coaching? Well, I'd always been kind of a player coach, you know, later in my career, helping guys out with grips. Um, the scouting report stuff that we had done in Seattle, they really didn't have much when we first got there. But I brought a lot of my stuff over from Milwaukee that we had, still in the American League. That um, I knew then because I went to a baseball academy, you know, a couple of them for 30 years. Teaching is always in my blood. And I don't think it really matters if you're teaching, you know, young kids or older guys. When you're a teacher, you're a teacher. You know, and I was in, and I was a student of the game. What was this academy? It was a base, it was Basio Baseball Academy. Where? Right, out in California. I had one in, 
in Ranch Cordova, another one up at Shingle Springs. So I had a couple of them. We ran an after-school program for kids. Got an award through the state from the governor for best new business. Yeah, it was a really cool award. Very gratifying. How many years? We had that for about eight years. And then uh, Lee Fidella got the job with Tampa. He called me up and asked me to go with him to Tampa as his pitching coach. So obviously not every guy who's a pitcher, even a really good pitcher, can be a coach. What's the difference? What makes you able to do things that other guys can't think, see? Or? I think just awareness of the game of trust, being a student of the game. I learned a lot from Mulder and Yount and, you know, just all the old brewers, Cecil Cooper, Ben Ogilvy, you know, Jim Gander, Charlie Moore, you know, Charlie O'Brien, just Dan Plezak. These are these are really good friends of mine that I mean we we learn the game together. And a lot of the veterans said all you need to do is shut your mouth and look at the scoreboard and then just listen and watch the game. And the game will be a great, great friend of yours if you pay attention. Where most of the guys you just mentioned weren't pitchers except for Prisa. It's interesting. I learned a lot from the position players. I mean, I obviously you know, paid attention to my comrades, but the position players that we had, they're Hall of Famers, and I knew they were going to be. So I tried to get as much information from these guys as I could and learn as much about pitching from an offense perspective, which helped, helped me not only be a pitcher but be a coach. Because I I coach base you know baseball, whether it's hitting or fielding or catching or outfield pitching, everything, all aspects, and those guys helped me tremendously. Being a good teacher, did you learn from some of your own pitching coaches along the way? Oh yeah, yeah, you know, Chuck Hardenstein, great guy. Larry Haney, great guy. Uh, one of the best guys I've ever had was a guy in California by the name of Rich Rose. He told me just throw the ball as hard as you can for as long as you can. And I did. It was back then. I was 93, 97. I didn't have any secondary pitches, but that's why Pete Vukovic took me under his wing and made a, a guy from California spend two winters in Wisconsin, and he taught me how to spend the ball, maybe be a pitcher, not a thrower. So what did you learn? What, what did you I learned in the secondary? I, my slider, I developed, I could throw three different speeds. My fastball, I could throw three different speeds. My changeup, I could throw to three different speeds. And those are the things that I pass on to all the pitchers that I've had. And I have right now. Jake Carey, a perfect example. He's got three different speeds on everything he throws. Kyle Hendricks, John Lester. You know, these are these are guys. All I'm doing is passing the torch to them, and they're going to pass the torch to other guys. And I got a great, great, great bunch of guys that were here. I had a bunch of guys when I coached here in Milwaukee and in Seattle and in Tampa. And I just try to, again, I just try to pass it on and give these guys as much information as I can. People ask about Arietta because he came here from Baltimore, didn't have great success and all of a sudden. So what did you impart to him? You think this made a difference? Same thing that I just told you. Change speeds on everything, confidence, have fun doing it, being able to throw any pitches at any time, and don't be afraid to do it. It's one thing you can't really teach is command, right? Well, we work on the mechanical side of it. But Jake was so talented physically that, you know, we we hit it off so good on a personal level that he trusted me immediately. And once you have trust in somebody, it's a powerful thing. And you can see how powerful it is now and the success Jake's had. So you speak about mechanics. When you watch a pitcher, what do you see that, 
somebody else won't fan or even another position. Where- I look at everything. I, I work from the ground up. I watch their feet. I watch, you know, how their lower half works. You know, their 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 feet, their knees, their hips, their upper body, their lead arm. And it, 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 a lot of people go, well, don't you watch the ball? Well, in time, but there's so many other things going on before you get rid of the ball that can be a you know deterrent. Mm-hmm. It can really lead you astray. And I work on I work off timing, visualization stuff, previous pitch. Um, we work count tendency stuff. I look for counts that hitters like to swing in, and then we take advantage of those counts. You know, if a guy's hitting 400 on first pitches, we won't throw him a strike first pitch to take that number away from him. If a guy's hitting on 400 on first pitch, and he's overall hitting 300, at some point this is going to hurt him if we don't pitch to him first pitch. Manny Ramirez had a stat one year where 50% of his homers, the year he had 53 homers, came on first or second pitch. We deliberately threw balls first and second pitch, and the, normally the guy hit eight, ten home runs against us back in his Boston against Tampa days. Well, when we took those away, he had one home run on us all year. One. And it was on a 2-1 pitch. It wasn't on first or second. And the previous year, he had 13. So we were able to take 12 of those homers away, which enabled us to win five more games because we took Manny Ramirez' bat out of that lineup. Stuff like that is huge, and that's the stuff I implement now. So it's not just the mechanics, it's the whole aspect of it's everything. Counts. Yeah, it's absolutely everything. I've really got to get going again. I'm sorry.